Welcome to the Dermatology Podcast, the official podcast of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. I'm Christopher Horskamp. And I'm Adriana Juraszek. And we are your hosts. This week, EADV's Dr. Sarah Walsh will be interviewing Professor Wayne Gulliver on the effectiveness of a treatment for hydrogenitis suppurativa. All patients potentially can progress. Many of them do. It doesn't matter whether you're Hurley 1 or Hurley 3, you can still get progression of disease, and that can occur within a, a few years. But before we get into it, Face-to-face courses are back. Specialists, residents, and now nurses all have the possibility to attend EADV-organized courses. We're looking forward to meeting you in some of the most beautiful cities in Europe. To see what's coming up next, go to eadv.org and check under face-to-face education. If you're not an EADV member, have you thought about becoming one? Benefit from access to on-demand webcasts, online courses, 19 medical journals, including EADV's esteemed JADV, over 20 textbooks, reduced fees for congresses and symposia, and much, much more. Go to eadv.org under membership for more information. Our guest today, Professor Wayne Gulliver and his co-authors, recently published an article, Real-World Effectiveness of Adalimumab in Patients with Moderate to Severe Hydrogenitis Separativa, the One-Year Solace Study. Today, we hand over the podcast to EADV School Committee member, Dr. Sarah Walsh, who has a few questions about Professor Gulliver's research. Hello, and welcome to all our listeners. Uh, my name is Sarah Walsh. I'm a dermatology consultant uh, working in London and also a member of the EADV School Committee. And it's my great pleasure uh, for today's podcast to be joined by Professor Wayne Gulliver. Now, Professor Gulliver uh, is a vastly experienced clinician of dermatology and a prolific researcher in various domains of medical dermatology, as well as being um, a past professor and chair of the Division of Medicine and head of dermatology at the Memorial University of Newfoundland. And he's agreed, I'm delighted to say, to come and speak to us today about a recently published study in the JEADV. Um, about um, of a, cro- a pan-Canadian uh, trial or study looking at the use of adalimumab in the context of hydradenitis suppurativa. And it's a paper I really enjoyed reading as somebody who do- runs uh, a HS clinic in, in London. So thank you very much, Professor Gulliver, for joining us. And um, I guess I'd like to start by understanding a little bit more about the setting for the study. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the guidelines for managing HS across Canada? Uh, Because in the UK, we're quite restricted and there's quite a a prescriptive hierarchy of treatments that we're expected to have tried prior to progressing a patient onto adalimumab. Is that the case in your practice? No, it's not. Uh, In Canada, we actually follow uh, the guidelines, and the guidelines tell us that if a patient has failed uh, three months of antibiotic therapy, uh, most often it's doxycycline, uh, and they have at least three active inflammatory lesions or abscesses, then they're eligible for a biologic And so this is in the product uh, monograph and it's followed. uh, And so when we actually apply to use adalimumab for HS, that's really the only criteria. Have they had three months uh, 
of uh, an antibiotic, uh, either doxycycline or one of the other appropriate ones, and were they intolerant or did they fail mm -hmm. that appropriate therapy? And what proportion of patients in your own practice would say have had combination antibiotic therapy with rifampicin and clindamycin, which is quite an important therapeutic step? Yeah, yeah, it is very important. And, you know, uh, we have very little TB left, so there's no big issue about the resistance. And so about a third of my patients would uh, use that. Uh, if they're not keen to go on to a biologic, I will sometimes start with the doxycycline. If they do not respond appropriately, then use the clindamycin, rifampicin, uh, and occasionally we use you know, other uh, combinations, but those are the two most uh, commonly used. And of the 23 contributing centres in Canada, would they have been generalist clinics or would they have been running specialist hydranitis suppurativa clinics? Yeah, so I actually looked at the uh, sites prior to us chatting and really only five of the 23 uh, sites were run by, I would call it, Canadian HS experts. Uh, the rest uh, were medical dermatologists. Uh, some of them were even psoriasis experts. Uh, and so, it, yeah, this was, you know, a real world study uh, and the majority of the uh, sites were real world sites, uh, medical dermatologists looking after a variety of uh, medical uh, dermatology patients. Which is what makes it, as I say, the real life uh, dimension is, of course, what interests me as a practicing clinician. Just moving through a little bit more towards the, the the analysis that you did, I see that you did some prognostication according to age and gender. And um, because of where I practice being very predominantly a patient group of skin type 5, 6, um, I wondered if you'd done any analysis of the different ethnic groups. Now, I appreciate, obviously, you were vastly predominantly uh, Caucasian yes. um, in terms of the the, the cohort. Um, but I wondered if you had any, even if you couldn't say statistically significantly, if you had any clinical impressions. Yeah, uh, this is a very unique study in a couple of ways. One is that it actually enrolled uh, a number of Indigenous patients uh, from our First Nations, which again, you know, is unique. Uh, we also did have some, you know, uh, African Canadians. Uh, and we've asked Avi if we could do some sub-analysis. But speaking to the, uh, you know, uh, sites that enroll those patients, uh, those patients seem to fare as well as uh, the rest of the patients. Uh, so, but it would be nice, even though it's, you know, a small number, just getting an idea of their lesion counts. But again, uh, when I speak to my colleagues who, who treat uh, both Indigenous patients and people of uh, African-Canadian descent, they often find that they have very severe disease. Uh, and so it would be nice just to even know what their lesion counts were, what type of lesions they had, even though it's small numbers. So we have requested that that analysis be done. And uh, so hopefully someone from Advi will uh, view this and uh, get on with it. Get on with it. Well, I have to say that was a question that ran through my mind because I certainly find in the cohort patients I look after myself that those of Afro-Caribbean and African origin often have much, much more severe disease at baseline and whether that is a reflection of 
delay in seeking treatment or whether that's just simply a characteristic of the disease that they have. But, you know, you often find that the lesion count reduction is much more impressive. Um, yes. You know, so whether it's a true effect, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. And, and speaking about response rates, I noticed that the proportion of patients in the SOLACE study um, reaching your primary endpoint, which was um, you know, 50% reduction in, in lesion count, um, was higher than that that was reported in the Pioneer studies, which of course were the original studies of the use of adalimumab in HS. And your discussion is quite interesting because it highlights some suggestions as to why this might be, why the, the, the response rate was higher in the SOLACE study. Do you want to just refresh our memory a little bit about what explanations might possibly explain this? Yeah, yeah. So, the, the, well, I mean, one very important one is that we looked at week 24 and then we saw in the pioneer studies that as you continued beyond week 12, 16, that, you know, a number of patients, especially if they had uh, achieved at least a 25% reduction uh, in their uh, lesion count were more likely to achieve high score. So the 24 week, and I believe that's very reasonable for an HS study is, is 24 weeks. The other, this was real life practice. So we could inject lesions. Uh, we could add uh, oral antibiotics. We could add topicals. So it was a, a real world setting so that we could use adjuvant therapy, which we know can be helpful in, in certain patients. So I believe those are you know things that helped us do better for our patients. Yeah, no, it's very, very impressive. And as I say, a lot more encouraging than the than the original pioneer results. And and just to, to make a comment about that, you know, when I used to present the pioneer data to patients and say, well, there's a 50% chance of maybe you know, a 50% improvement, uh, the buy-in was less. Uh, but when I present this and say a 70% you know, chance of achieving at least a 50% improvement. And I also now add in no progression. Uh, then I believe the buy-in. So this real world data has, you know, well, it's hugely us. important. It's hugely important. And as you say, presenting patients with compelling reasons to take a treatment, particularly where you're concurrently having to tell them about a, a side effect profile, which may be quite frightening to some of them, Yes. You know, the data you've generated is is hugely important. And I think all practicing clinicians would probably at this stage know from clinical experience that better results can be achieved with adalimumab than reported with a pioneer study. But it's lovely to have really, you know, good quality evidence to show that that is the case. And as you say, to share with patients before you before you start them on treatment. And I, I was also quite struck, which I hadn't actually seen before in HS papers, was I liked the fact that you did the analysis according to upper and lower body. And is that what was what prompted that? Is that um, an observation that one site responds differently or? Yes. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I used to do wound care as well. And, and we know that the you know, lower extremities, lower part of the body is a little slower to heal. The upper part of the body heals much more quickly. You know, why? Well, it's closer to the heart, probably a little more oxygen, et cetera, whatever the reason is. And so we thought it would be very interesting because, again, you can use that uh, in a practical uh, approach to treating patients because you can say, well, you know, the upper body is probably going to heal faster. Even though the lower body is a little slower, it's still going to get better with time. 
So it has, uh, you know, a lot of uh, clinical utility in the, you know, as you have a patient in front of you, because they may come and say, well, you know, my arms and the inframammary area is clear, but you know, my lower part of my body, well, that's going to be a little bit slower, may not respond quite as well, but you know, uh, eventually we'll get there. So it was useful, you know, uh, dividing uh, and stratifying based upon area of body. I, I agree entirely because I think they also have severity of disease in the lower body can have a disproportionately higher impact on quality of life as well. That's the other thing that I've noticed in my in my patient cohort. Um, so the paper necessarily uses a lot of different scoring systems. So you've got your Hurley, your um HISCR and the IHS-4. But I was just interested to know, what do you use in your own clinical practice day to day? Yeah, so I can use them all because I do a lesion count. And so once you've done the lesion count, so once you've counted the abscesses, inflammatory nodules uh, and the tunnels, you can you can calculate any of them. So I have a scoring sheet, which, and then obviously I, I do the Hurley stage uh, so I just count the count the lesions, and once you and you know when we designed the study, I remember having the chat with uh, uh, my good uh, friend uh, Dr. Christine Jean, who was the uh, AVI uh, spearheading person for this study. Uh, we were chatting about you know designing the study, and and uh, so I said let's count all the lesions. Uh, I knew IHS four was coming because I was part of the European group. And that way we could use whatever scoring and we could then have real world evidence of, of which one. And, you know, they're all important because IHS-4 not only tells you about response, but also about progression uh, of disease as does high score. So these are all very important. And then, you know, we know that with time, uh, you know, one score may become more important than another, but if you have all the data, then you can use whatever is uh, just you know, plug them into the various yeah to the calculator whatever's relevant and so mm-hmm. you know and I, you know and and it's not easy uh, as we both know you know doing scores it's not easy counting individual lesions uh, no it can be challenging yeah it can be challenging challenging to to do and certainly very challenging to teach others to do is is my experience but yes i see that they all have a, a an importance um the other thing in the discussion, which I definitely resonated with me, was this concept of there being a window of opportunity uh, with treating these patients, um, meaning that there's a better chance of responding to treatment where the du- disease duration has been has been shorter. Now, I guess you're quite fortunate in Canada if you don't have to follow a highly prescriptive therapeutic ladder. But do you think that there's an argument for skipping these laborious steps that we, let's say, in the United Kingdom are forced to go through, where you see a case which is as relatively short duration and is very severe for just going straight to a biological therapy on the basis that it may have a disease modifying effect? Well, I agree with that because, you know, if uh, if we look at uh, the UNITE registry, uh, you know, that data there is very solid, showing us that, you know, all, all 
patients potentially can progress. Many of them do, doesn't matter whether you're Hurley one or Hurley three, you can still get progression of disease and that can occur within a, a few years. Uh, the concept of treating early and getting the disease under control, uh, uh, you know, modifying the disease is, is, is a great concept. And you can see that from our data that, you know, uh, people with a shorter duration of disease were more likely to achieve, uh, you know, high score and have a significant decrease. So, you know, so the longer out, and, and we see that concept in psoriasis as well, that, you know, a uh, shorter duration of disease is more likely to, uh, to respond. So yeah, uh, both. Uh, the other observation was that, you know, males do better than females. And again, that wasn't surprising because, uh, we recently published a paper showing in our registry of psoriasis patients that males, you know, that uh, of the 40% of people still on their first biologic over the last 15 years, 75% of them are males. And so, you know, they're more likely to respond and they're more likely to, uh, you know, so we, we know there's definitely a difference in response between uh, females and males when it comes to biologics for almost any uh, therapeutic mm -hmm, indication. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, and, and on that basis, it's, it's so disheartening when you meet a patient who's had disease clearly that's very, very well established and simply hasn't accessed uh, dermatology care early enough because you know that they're they've already bypassed probably that window of, of opportunity. And then it becomes a medical surgical management think, yeah, uh, and we, yeah, we need yeah. our surgical colleagues and friends to help us with those patients. Indeed, indeed. I'm also quite interested by your finding, which was mentioned in the discussion, that the more inflammatory the disease at baseline, so, you know, measured by the IHS-4, the better the chance of responding to the adalimumab. And I guess that comes back to your point again about using the different scoring systems because the IHS-4 is good at picking up inflammation. Am I right? It is, yes. And it also covers off all the inflammatory lesions. So, you know, nodules, abscesses, and tunnels. And, you know, adalimumab is directed, uh, you know, towards inflammation. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, if, if you have a lot of scarring and less inflammatory burden, then this drug is not going to do you as well if you have you know, a high inflammatory burden. So it actually tells us the drug yeah. is doing what it's supposed to do, supposed to do, yeah. treat the inflammatory mm -hmm. uh, lesions, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, and I was very surprised by tunnels because, you know, until this study, there, there was an urban myth that tunnels didn't respond to medical therapy. We were all going, well, they have a lot of tunnels. There's no sense treating them. And, uh, you know, I, I was... Uh, you know, extremely pleased to see that, uh, you know, tunnels didn't... Uh, yeah, it's over, it. over, overturned that that urban myth. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so just think, you know, looking ahead to the future, what do you think the next therapeutic targets will be for HS? What's the direction of travel in terms of treatment? Yeah. We, well, we just recently finished the European HS Foundation meeting and, you know, one of the most exciting presentations was uh, given, well, there were two by Professor Prinz and Zobulis about the upcoming uh, GWAS, right? The genome-wide association study, because right now we only have one genetic link uh, in uh, HS on chromosome one. 
Now, there happens to be quite a lot of targets potentially on chromosome one. So S100 is there. We know there's IL-17, 23, uh, many, many genes, even though they're not linked to uh, HS as of yet. So, you know, right now we're still repurposing psoriasis drugs for the treatment of HS. But once we do the GWAS, as we've done in psoriasis, we will reveal, you know, many potential targets. Uh, so we've just redone our GWAS and psoriasis and found a gene that uh, linked to uh, TIC2. And lo and behold, there's a drug targets TIC2 that's going to eventually be approved for psoriasis. So uh, that's where it all lays is that we need to have some good science. Uh, we need to do the GWAS. Uh, we still, you know, we've analyzed the cytokines. We know which ones are elevated. Those are still reasonable targets. Because if you look at something like IL-23 in psoriasis, there are very few polymorphisms that are linked to IL-23 and psoriasis, but there's a few, you know, so that it does exist, low numbers. But look how well targeting IL-23 is. So even if you have a very low potential, you know, is it being a massive gene? Because again, if you look at psoriasis and HLA-CW6, which is, you know, such a profound genetic association, but, you know, there's no, tar that you, you know, treating CW6, no one has done that yet or tried yeah. it, you know. Uh, so, so the whole idea is that even if we get small signals, then we can start exploring uh, in, both animal models and then, you know, in the patients. Uh, and so there may be already 20 drugs out there that will, you know, work as well in HS as the 17s and the 23s work in psoriasis. We just have to get the, you know, direction and the GWAS, I believe, will give us uh, yeah. that, you know, direction and, you know, in a truly scientific uh, manner. And yeah, get the clinical trials underway. Cause yeah, I mean, I, I would hope that in the future we will have the same luxury that we now have with psoriasis of having a whole wardrobe of, of, of medications to, to select from with our, with our severe disease patients. Whereas at the moment, the armamentorium for HS feels a little threadbare. So uh, yeah, I should. It is, yeah, it's, it's, it's sparse, very sparse. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. You know, improving, you know, there's with the, with the 17th uh, coming, uh, it will help. Yeah, uh, I mean, the 23s have been disappointing. Uh, I do have a couple of patients, you know, that had 30 tunnels, both who have done very well on a 23. But, you know, uh, we again have to analyze, uh, mm. you know, it's like is, you know, tunnel disease different than abscess, different than as is plaque psoriasis different than pommel plantar pustular yeah. versus generalized pustular. So there may be, you know, a spectrum of disease in HS and we may need to target different cytokines uh, in yeah, order yeah, to yeah. Uh, target the whole yeah. uh, patient, you know? Yeah, and so I think you're right. I think characterizing the nature of disease in HS and being much more precise about the type of lesion will be will be very, very important. Um, listen, Professor Gulliver, I, I, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. I congratulate you wholeheartedly on this paper, which you know I found hugely helpful as a practicing clinician. And thank you for speaking about it so eloquently with me today. I'm sure our listeners will have enjoyed it just as much as I have. So thank you very much. Well, I, I, I 
appreciate the uh, chance to chat. And really, I should, you know, uh, pass on the thanks to, uh, I believe, Marty Oakham, Dr. Oakham, and again, Christine Jean, who really have uh, helped us uh, move forward with this uh, very important uh, medical uh, dermatological disease. Uh, I share that with uh, two of my colleagues. Thank you very much. And that's it for this episode of The Dermatology Podcast. Of course, all of the research presented today can be found in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. Though you can find some free access and open access articles, EADV members benefit greatly by having access to all articles and content. We would like to thank Professor Wayne Gulliver for sharing his research, Dr. Sarah Walsh for moderating the discussion, and thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts to make sure you get the newest episodes delivered right to you. We appreciate you joining us and look forward to presenting more interviews, research, and other topics of merit. Until the next episode, take care of your skin.